0: Good morning. My name is Dee. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to be your pastor and to be with you on this journey together and to be with you this morning. Great to see your face, to sing with you, to hear uh, the word read and uh, maybe by chance we will feel like we have dug a little bit deeper into this passage before the morning is over. Um, I do want to say before we jump into this passage reiterate something that is part of our announcements and that is how excited I am about the upcoming month of April. I know it takes a l- Um, a few of us out of what is our normal routine, but the fact that we are coming together, um, both services and joining together, as we do throughout the year periodically, but to do it for an entire month, I just love the rhythm of this and I'm looking forward to it. If for any reason you're um, struggling with how to navigate, it's no different. Uh, If you've got a Sunday school class, you're interested in attending, it'll meet during the first hour and Service takes place in the second hour, just like this time starts right here. So it shouldn't be a whole lot of change for this group, just that we're meeting across the Friendship Plaza um, in what is often referred to as Brown Chapel. So I'm looking forward to it because it's a collection of fantastic services where we, the first Sunday, celebrate communion and baptism, those very powerful sacraments of faith. The second Sunday is Palm Sunday. The third is Easter Sunday. The fourth is the state of the church. It's just a wonderful opportunity to share these things together as an entire fellowship, so I hope you will mark it on your calendar as a time to uh, not miss, to be here for that. So I just wanted to mention it one more time. Um, We are in the midst of this month in March looking at the Old Testament reading out of our four lectionary readings. We are looking at the one this Sunday that you just heard read out of um, Genesis chapter 15. There's some unusual pieces in it, uh, particularly when it is kind of taken out of context, but even in context where God shows up like a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, it's kind of an unusual image of God to have in this moment. Um, I'd like to look at a couple particular things of this passage, but actually give a, a little bit larger of a scenario because the story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 11 ...and goes all the way through Genesis 25. Fifteen chapters dedicated to this one person. But I will confess that in the big scheme of things... ...that actually feels like it's far too little. Because he is a patriarch of three different major world religions. And it almost feels like there ought to be more material than that. But still, given how scripture moves through history... It's a lot of material given to one individual. And it starts in an interesting way. It starts in a way that reminds me of a show I watched this last week. Um, I think it was a rerun, because I think it goes back to some previous season. But it was an episode of the PBS show Finding Your Roots, hosted by Henry Gates. What a great host he is. And it takes somewhat famous people... And it looks at their genealogy, their history, their family line. I'm guessing that there are a number of people here who have done that on your own. Well, not completely on your own. You've accessed whatever online assets there are to make it possible for you to trace things back. And some of you, like me, get stuck and can't seem to get past a certain generation, only going back a few. And Others, my goodness, you've probably traced it and have some wonderful stories that you could stand up right now and share, but hold off on that just for a moment, if you would. This particular episode, Henry Gates met with three different individuals. One of them was the comedian Fred Armisen. Some of you will know him, some of you won't, but it's a story that's fascinating to me. He only knew a little bit about his storyline back to, I think it was, his grandfather or great-grandfather. But what was amazing for this one, as only PBS, who seems to have access to things around the globe, could do, they have shots and pictures of them going into these remote libraries in remote towns and even into remote churches or places of worship where historical documents are found. And in the search of his family line, they actually found documents that traced his lineage back to 63 BC. That's crazy. Over 2,000 years of this person and this person this person in the family tree, and they documented it and presented it to him with copies of those documents. It was stunning to me. Well, in a similar fashion, there are portions of Genesis that seem to take us back to uh, ancient places of the storyline of how someone came to be. If you go back to the roots of Fred Armisen back 2,000 years, we'll double that and go another 2,000 years and a little bit more and you come to our storyline in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 11 is where this story begins and it takes us back even further. And it starts with Noah and then moved to his son, Shem, and then to our then Shelah, then Eber, then from Eber to Peleg, from Peleg to Ru, to Serug to Nahor, from Nahor to Terah, and Terah then had among his children three sons, one apparently named after his grandfather Nahor, another one Haran and Abram. Haran died younger than his father, and there came a point in time, we find, where Terah decided to take his son Abram and his grandson by Haran and head toward Canaan, leaving the place of their homeland where they had been for a while in a place that you heard referenced in Scripture called Ur of the Chaldees probably, though we're not absolutely certain where this is located, probably at the northwestern end of the Euphrates, somewhere in the northern end of the sometimes referred to as Mesopotamia, and make their way down toward Canaan, just off of the Mediterranean Sea. He didn't make it that far. Stopped in a town that, interestingly, had the name of his son who passed away, Haran. And they stayed there. And in this place, Terah eventually passed away. At some point in time, Abram decided he wanted to complete the journey that his father had brought them on. And so he and his nephew, Lot, gathered together their things and family members, and decided to continue the trek to Canaan. They made it, but something happened. We think likely a famine or something that that caused them to feel like they had to find other resources. They eventually made their way down to Egypt and then returned from Egypt and came back into Canaan. This is the story of Abram, who God would rename as Abraham. And in chapter 15, at the very beginning, we have a portion of the promise, probably would be appropriate to say the promises that God made to Abram, again, renamed Abraham. They were promises that included a land descendants, and the blessing. And the unique characteristic of the blessing was that the blessing was not to be contained by Abraham and his family, but it was a blessing that was to flow through them so that all nations through Abraham might be blessed by God. At the beginning of chapter 15, we have portions of this or covenant that God has made. It's interesting, it's almost as if God is making the covenant and is functioning as both parties to this covenant because Abraham and his descendants don't always fulfill the call to be obedient to God through all things. But God's the one who has made the covenant and has, in the passage we heard re- read, established it very clearly that this is God's commitment. To Abraham. Part of the promise at the beginning of chapter 15 includes God saying, I am your shield. Some translators translate it as I am sovereign for you. It means I'm your defender. I'm the one who will care over you. I am your protector. So the first portion is, I'm your shield. It also says, I am your reward. Some translators say, I am your wages. It's interesting, God is saying, I am your provider, I am your source. And you could take this in multiple ways. Particularly when we think of our modern day view of this, I am your wages, meaning that God is ultimately our greatest resource. Probably truthfully, we would say our only resource if we understood how all of the things behind all of the things we have have operated. But it is also appropriate that God is not only the greatest treasure we could ever possibly imagine, but the treasures we have that ring in our heart as long as they don't replace God in an idolatrous way, become expressions of God's gift to us. So the resources we have are an expression of God's blessing. When those resources become the things that we worship, we then take the gift instead of the giver. As Psalm 16 speaks about, you will find joy in my presence, eternal pleasures in my right hand. The eternal pleasures in the right hand are God's gift to us. They are not God to us. And so we can enjoy the eternal pleasures in God's right hand, but let's not forget that our joy is in God's presence, in God's face, and dwelling in relationship with God. And so we have this promise that God makes to Abraham. Here is, for me, what I find interesting in this passage. When, when Abraham raises a question, that's a great promise, Lord, but can I remind you of what I don't have? I appreciate all of those good things, but I'd really like to pass on my inheritance to someone who's part of my flesh and blood, but that's not going to happen because there is no one who fits that description. God has a response for this, but the portion that I would like to focus in on this morning is not the portion we typically focus in on. God's response begins with this. I am God who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees. It's an interesting line. God identifying God's self by something that God has done already on behalf of Abraham. Abraham. If this was an isolated situation, I would think, okay, this is just a nice add-on that the writer has put in here. But we find throughout Scripture that God often has that self-identification of something that's out of the past. Over and over in Scripture, once we get past the enslavement in Egypt, And the walk through the desert, even during the walk in the desert, the reference over and over again is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Referenced again and again. Why the significance on identifying something that comes out of Abraham's past or the Israelites' past or our past? And I think that it's because Abraham desperately needs this reminder And I would propose that this morning I do too. Maybe you as well. The reminder of the places from which God has brought you and me. And one of the reasons that's important is that I have the tendency, if not physically, mentally, or emotionally, to return to my land of Ur. Whatever that is for you, you probably do the same. As much as I believe God has helped me to grow and has given me a new vision of where to head, of uh, of an idea of what health looks like and cast light on the areas in my life that have held me back, have caused a great deal of struggle or have led me down pathways where I was not really worshiping God but worshiping my ability to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, What happens so often is that God's patience and God's work where I have grown, when stress levels rise, I retreat to that which is most familiar. All of us do. Regardless of the new patterns we have, if we haven't lived in those new patterns long enough, when stress levels or problems or conflict or whatever it might be gets more and more difficult, even though we know some old ways of doing things are dysfunctional, They're so familiar to us, we at least know the outcome. Even if it's not the best, it's familiar to us. We repeat patterns from our family of origin, from the way in which we were raised, the things that we've done in relationships over and over again. Now, I will be quick to say that some of the things that help us to survive, we should honor and be grateful that some things help to get us through. But there comes a point in time when some patterns no longer serve us well. And God's Spirit casts light on those things, and we go, oh, yeah, that's not working. That's not the way I ought to be in relationship. That's not the way I ought to treat others. That's not the way I ought to love myself. That's not the way I ought to live. I see the way in which I manipulate or I control or I hide or whatever the case might be, and we begin to change. But over and over again, we are tempted to retreat back to Ur of the Chaldees. I I would propose to you that there are a couple themes that go through Scripture over and over again that I think are there, and you'll hear this morning. One is the way in which God identifies God's self by sometimes reminding us of that historical piece if we'll listen closely enough. I also think there is a great tendency in all of us, and it's spoken of in Scripture over and over again, to believe in God but to not trust in God. There is a huge difference between those two. The believing in God we find throughout Scripture, the trusting in God is what separates those who are followers from those who simply mm, believe. And there are many who believe who are not disciples of Christ. Uh, It starts at the beginning with Adam and Eve. The temptation to Adam and Eve is to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil so that they might be like God. Well, if I can be like God, then I don't need God anymore because I'm like God. That temptation exists over and over and over again. Their children, Cain and Abel, they both brought offerings. One brought an offering called a minka. The other brought an offering called a mibakorath. Two offerings to God. They both believed in God. One of them was simply that, an offering, a grain offering that acknowledged God's existence. The other offering was a blood offering. A blood offering meant not only do I acknowledge God, but I need God. I need a sacrifice that helps bring me close to God because apart from that, there's no way I could approach God. There is a difference between simply saying God is and trusting in God. I could carry that through into This story with Abraham, we could carry it into the New Testament. The stories are all over the place of the difference between those two. But let's stop with Abraham for a moment. Abraham has set up altars, the places where he's lived, to worship God, acknowledge God. But we find it very difficult for Abraham to actually trust God. God has offered promises of where God is taking Abraham. But time and again, Abraham resorts to Abraham's limited resources. Now, there's nothing wrong with using your resources, but there's a huge difference between giving your resources to God and asking God to help you know how to use them and using them in your own ways to manipulate circumstances to try and do for God what it appears as if God is either reluctant to do or won't do, I'm just going to have to take charge, and Abraham over and over again steps into that place. I would contend that for those people who have great resources, it's even harder to trust God, and I don't know that it's easy for us to dismiss and say, yeah, I don't have very many resources, but I would contend for anybody who lives in the Western world and many who live in other places that we have so many resources, it's difficult to fully trust because it's so easy to fall back on what I have, if God comes through, great, but if not, I got this. What? Well, that means you're living far beneath where God might call you out of Ur of the Chaldees to where God is taking you in your life's journey, because God always stretches us, and in doing so, it pops up how hard it is to trust God. And so we find Abraham doing some interesting things to try and accommodate God's from Abraham's perspective reluctance. Doesn't seem from the promise that God is reluctant at all. But it's not on Abraham's timetable, which is a great way by which God shows God's sovereignty. God's timing is more often than not, my timing. Because when I am wanting to trust on God because it's gotten so difficult and it's in a tough place, my response is, okay, God, I'm all in on this. I trust you, so where are you? And then a week later or two weeks later, okay, I have been trusting, and I just thought that you would kind of come in in these moments, swoop in like I would if I were in your shoes, Because certainly I have the right posture, the right approach. Am I praying wrong? What's wrong, God? So we have Abraham who goes to his wife as they go to a foreign land and says to her, I'm really concerned that when we go to this foreign land, people are going to have an eye for you will kill me so that they can have you. So here's my idea. Tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Wow, great husband move, really. The stunning thing is she actually does this and creates all kinds of havoc and problems. You think Abraham would learn, but no, he does this again. Not only does he do this again, but this tendency in this family line, I don't know if it gets passed down genetically between men and their stupidity or if there is just, that's learned behavior. But the son does the same thing as well. This propensity to stretch the truth, manipulate the truth, to try and get what is wanted because I can't fully trust that God can be my shield, my protector, my defender, that God can be my reward, my resource, my wages. And so, I'll take matters into my own hands. This is Abraham who has a tough time believing that God can produce a family that is as expansive as the stars in the sky. God's promise is so big. Trusting so hard. And God's patience it feels that there are times when Abraham takes his eye off of the promise giver, becomes so focused on the promise and feels a sense of entitlement, goes after what he believes are the promises to which he has now become entitled, as opposed to resting in the place where the promise giver is his source and resource, his shield and protection. When I think of this, I feel like I'm reminded of one of one of those wonderful hard moments in my journey. Many of you know that I enjoy hiking. It just is uh, something that's so different than the rest of my life. I enjoy doing it. um, Allows me to kind of get in touch with thoughts I don't have in other places. And so... This particular hike that I had two friends, they were going on this hike, but it fell right in the middle of VBS week here at the church. And I like to be here for VBS. I love for Shelly to give me an assignment. This happened to be at a time before Shelly really trusted me with very much, so I was in charge of parking. (laughs) I had to earn my way into her uh, approval. And I think this was my second or third year of helping with parking. One year, Kim did it with me, and uh, Kim apparently at that stage had not earned Shelly's Trust either. But I think I actually was to help Kim because I was not even to that level of being in charge. But this year I was. And... um, Monday and Tuesday are the most hectic. Wednesday is a m- much lighter. And I just asked Shelly, I said, "Shelley, I have it all covered. Could I miss one day of VBS to do this hike? And she said, yes. So right after Tuesday VBS, I got on a plane and I flew up to um, Portland, Oregon, rented a car to meet up with two friends that were taking a hike the next morning. I got to the set of cabins where they were at, but I didn't know what cabin they were in, and it was about 2 or 2.30 in the morning by the time I got there, and so I just leaned the car seat back, and I got about, I don't know, four hours, three hours sleep. You don't sleep real well, but I got some sleep, and about 7.30, I figured out what cabin they were in, went in, and we immediately got in the car and went to the staging point. We were going to hike up Mount St. Helens, and so we got out of the car, parking, I helped do the parking right there, so it felt like that was my due diligence. The walk, I've had some wonderful, beautiful walks. Oh my goodness, the trail, well marked, the pine trees, the smell, the, the, the undergrowth was not overwhelming. In fact, it was just kind of beautiful and so green in the middle of the summer. It was breathtaking. The day started out not simply overcast. These were the big kind of cumulus clouds. I think that's what they are. The big puffy kind. But they were everywhere. And you couldn't see the sky at all. But you could see the beautiful landscape around you. We had not quite gotten past the tree line yet. But it was starting to get very sparse. And came, I didn't know this was going to happen, to a spot where we got past the cloud line. We were about uh, two-thirds of the way up, maybe three-fourths. We broke through the cloud line. and this is part of the Cascade mountain range that starts up in Canada and makes its way down into the United States. And when I looked out, it was like flying in a plane where you break through the clouds and all of a sudden blue skies and sunshine. But here, when I looked out, I'm looking at the peaks of Mount Adams and Mount Jefferson and Mount Washington and Mount Rainier and Mount Hood. And oh my goodness, all of them peeking up through the clouds, scattered all across the horizon. It was breathtaking. What I didn't anticipate was that shortly after we got through the cloud line, only about a fourth of the trek left to the ridge of the volcano that was still smoldering. We hit a stretch that was covered completely, as far as you could see, in, I, I don't know what to describe it, but like pumice rock. It wasn't the solid lava that your shoes can get a good grip on. This was crumbled down into tiny little, like, shale type of rock. And it was deep. So, so you'd take a step and maybe another, and then you'd slide back. Both your feet would slide at the same time. And you'd take a couple more steps, and you'd just slide back. And to make any progress took so much time. For me, I discovered that really the only way I could do it was to get enough um, of my shoe material kind of pushing against that rock that I'd have to do my own, make my own little switchbacks back and forth. There was no path. At this point in time, it was all covered with this rock and no paths had been, c- um, it, nobody had worn it down enough to get down to whatever was beneath it. There was a little indentation off to the left that looked like it was a place where water runoff took place, but if you stepped down into it, it was just deeper shale or deeper pumice rock. So difficult to make any kind of progress. But I felt like if I kept my eye on the ridge where I was heading, that I would inevitably get to where I was going. It was hard. There were times when I thought, man, I don't think I'm going to make this. This, both in time and effort, was harder than all the rest put together. The slide down, the move back up. The slide down, the move back up. But I did keep my eye on the ridge, on where I was headed, and bit by bit, slowly, I landed at my destination. I feel like for Abraham, for me, maybe for you, That sometimes I am trying to do my best and I've decided that I can't take this direct route because of what's in my way. I don't know if this is the wisest choice or not, but I'm keeping my eye on where I'm headed. I am aware of the things that need to happen in my life that move me in a direction of health, of wholeness, of spiritual completeness. And even if I find myself every once in a while taking a step, And not only sliding, but sliding even further than my last two steps took me, if I keep my eye on where it is that I'm going, that I'll get there. The biggest hindrance is if I take my eyes off of that and I start looking back at that which seemed a lot easier tendency to go back to the Ur of Chaldees in my life. Because it's not as if that's some disaster, or it could be, and God brought me up out of that, but some component parts maybe I could reclaim, relive, step back into. I don't know what God has brought you up out of. Or maybe God is still in the process of bringing you but what would God's self-identifying moniker be in your life? I am God who brought you out of that incredibly difficult time 10 years ago. I am God who brought you up out of that financial crisis, if you remember. I am the God who brought you up out of the family of origin struggled with. I am the God who brought you up out of your crisis of faith when you were ready to give up on all things. I, I am the God who brought you up out of your love for possessions or things. I am the God who brought you up out of that horrific broken relationship. What's Ur of the Chaldees for you? It's easy just to kind of wander back in that direction. Patterns, tendencies, maybe a tendency to stretch the truth, white lies, a tendency to take shortcuts in relationships, a tendency to manipulate, a tendency to meet financial crisis with methods that you might not otherwise do. A tendency to return back to the era of Chaldees. Now Ur in itself is not bad. It may be that some of us return to a place of origin. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm simply saying when we take our eyes off of the places to where God has called us, that's when we are retreating back to the Abram instead of following toward Abraham. That's when we're retreating back to what was instead of capturing God's vision for us of what will be. That's when we begin to retreat into patterns that have been destructive in the past because we're afraid that we don't know how to do that which is healthy in the future. And God says, I'm never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. I am the one who brought you up. I'm not about to turn my back on you now. I am beside you all the way. It doesn't mean that history is gone. If so, God would never identify as I'm the God who brought you out of Ur. There is still that part that is history. It's not like it's disappeared I mean, that's the other temptation is to try and ignore it as if it won't ever jump up and grab us and hold us by the ankle and drag us down. Acknowledging that it's there is every bit as important. It's a temptation to go back. It's a temptation to ignore it. Jesus, Scripture tells us, was tempted in every way we are. I've got to guess this was part of Jesus' journey as well. What were the catchphrases that might kind of for Jesus. Do you think that ever happened? It seems like it might have, because they referenced him as Jesus of Nazareth, which was not a very nice thing to say, because we're told in scripture, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's what's paired with Jesus of Nazareth. It's not like this is a great hooray. It is, yeah, we all know Nazareth, ugh. I can't imagine that it didn't come up sometime. Oh, yeah, Jesus, the one whose mom got pregnant before she got married. Jesus, yeah. Jesus, the one whose family lived in Egypt. Can you believe that? A Jewish family going to Egypt? (sighs) Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, the one whose parents left him at the temple and went a day and a half before they remembered. Yeah, forgettable Jesus. You don't think that these things were ever part of the things that kind of triggered a a retreat to familiar patterns or ways of thinking? I mean, we're even told in Scripture by one of the gospel writers that his brothers and sisters came and tried to get him Go back with him, because they kind of thought he was a little nuts. Thank you, family of origin. (laughs) Tempted as we are, in the same fashion as we are, this storyline is throughout Scripture. Peter, having lived with Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, following the impact of the crucifixion, where do we find Peter. Fishing. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing. Fishing is a great thing to do, but this was not Peter's calling. Peter had retreated to the land of Ur. And Jesus, so patient, comes and says, So, Peter, you need another large catch of fish? Okay. (laughs) Throw the nets on the other side again. Let's see what happens. patience of God as I take two steps and slide. Four steps and I fall down. Jesus is just, God is just saying to us this morning, if you'll keep your eyes fixed on my promise to you, if you will not simply believe that I exist, but you will trust in me, will get you to where you will find more fulfillment than you ever thought possible. And it's not just for you. Because I've got to tell you, you can probably get to the top by stepping on a whole lot of people. You probably can rise to some level by knocking down a whole lot of others. That certainly is a method, But my desire is to get you there so that through you, so many others will be blessed as well. Wouldn't it be a lot better to be at the top of the ridge with a bunch of others who share the sandwiches and the break with you? You just want to sit up there all alone. What does that mean? I am your shield and your great reward. My promise is true. My blessing is sure. And the purpose of that blessing is so that you and a lot of others get to where you are headed. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, some of us, are having a tough time envisioning any kind of promised land, so this morning we provide some relief from circumstances that feel overwhelming, skepticism that seems um, justified, For so many of us who have migrated to that place where we believe you, in you, we just don't trust you. We believe that something set all of this in motion, but Lord, it's really hard to think that you actually are in relationship and care enough about our circumstances. not simply offer promises, but to fulfill those promises.